Hello and welcome to episode number 50 of the Agro-Innovations podcast, released onto our website, agroinnovations.com, on April 28th, 2009. The theme of today's episode is soil carbon, but before we get into that, I just want to say briefly, uh, there is definitely a lot of fear out there in regards to the swine flu epidemic that is apparently manifesting itself. Uh, It's difficult to discern how much of that fear is justified and how much of that fear is propaganda. I don't have too much to say about that, except I would encourage our listeners to go back and listen to the Black Death episode of the podcast where I interview John Aberth, who is an expert in the medieval Black Death, and we talk about the social and environmental and consequences of the Black Death in medieval Europe. So that would be a podcast that may be appropriate for the time, and at least to realize that epidemics have been common in history, and they're not unprecedented, and certainly there are ways to prepare yourself both physically and mentally. So with that, let's jump right into our interview with Dale Anderson. In this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, I'm joined by Dale Enerson, who is employed by the North Dakota Farmers Union and is the director of the National Carbon Credit Program for the National Farmers Union. Dale Enerson, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Thank you, Frank. So, Dale, let's start by talking about your organization. Give us a brief summary of its history uh, and the things that it does apart from its work with carbon credits. Okay. Uh, National Farmers Union uh, was, I think, organized uh, some over 100 years ago, 1902, I believe, in uh, Texas, and uh, over the last 100 years uh, has represented uh, farmers uh, from really all parts of the country, Uh, certainly have a bigger presence in some parts of the country than others, Uh, the Northern Plains states, uh, some of the Rocky Mountain states, uh, Great Lakes states are a lot of the areas where Farmers Union has the largest amount of members. I think uh, nationwide we would have uh, members in, uh, well, I'm going to say 32 or 33 states uh, make up the uh, states of National Farmers Union. Uh, We would claim about 250,000 members uh, nationwide. Uh, Some of the largest states in terms of membership uh, would be the state of Oklahoma, the state of North Dakota, uh, Montana, Minnesota, uh, South Dakota, some of the Northern Plains states. Over time, I think National Farmers Union has uh, has been involved in in a lot of things. Uh, several themes have probably been some of the uh, the the main lobbying points or the main things they've worked on. Uh, typically, they've always tried to represent farmers, and in a lot of cases, trying to organize farmers into uh, some sort of a position to take a better economic position. And a good example, I guess, is forming uh, various kinds of cooperatives over the years. Uh, Farmers uh, Farmers Union nationally and a lot of state organizations have formed a lot of farmer-owned cooperatives, which uh, the theory then would be is that farmer would improve his economic position by being a part of a larger bargaining group. So cooperatives are a big part of uh, Farmers Union's work. Uh, also uh, education in the sense of, uh, first of all, educating people on the issues of agriculture. Uh, We do have a pretty active uh, youth program in a lot of states where uh, students actually study uh, business principles, cooperative principles. Uh, We have uh, camping programs for uh, teaching kids uh, leadership skills and so forth. 
And then uh, I guess kind of the third part of the organization of the three parts of the Farmers Union Triangle, as people would say, cooperation, or education, and then uh, legislation would be a big part of it. And like many organizations, we have a presence in Washington, D.C., and are uh, hoping to represent members and bring members to Washington periodically and lobby on issues of the day. Okay, so now let's get into this with soil carbon. Tell us why soil carbon, uh, tell us what soil carbon is and tell us why it's important. Okay, well, uh, I guess uh, starting several years ago, uh, there was a, a few folks here in North Dakota, and myself included, who were doing no-till cropping uh, for a, a number of reasons. Uh, especially in western North Dakota, we have a relatively cool, dry climate uh, most of the time. And over time, uh, a lot of the soils had been degraded through, uh, oh, uh, summer fallow, uh, inappropriate land uses, uh, dry conditions. People thought they had to fallow, and in the long run, it was sort of destructive to soil uh, uh, quality. And a number of folks is in, you know, there's there's other parts of the country as well. But we got started here in North Dakota in the uh, 80s with uh, a lot of farmers thinking about better ways of managing their land. And over time, uh, there's been a bit of a learning curve with farmers, how they've uh, changed their crop rotations and changed the uh, the tillage or lack of tillage uh, uh, kinds of methods. And over time, we've developed quite a cult following of people who can literally grow one crop after another without doing any tillage. The ultimate in no-till, and uh, in some cases minimum till, and in some cases with row crops, uh, strip till. All of these things have developed. Well. About five years ago then, uh, North Dakota Farmers Union uh, decided to explore the relationship with the Chicago Climate Exchange, who at that time had first started writing some protocols and said, you know, the science would say that we can store carbon if we reduce the amount of tillage in our soils. The Over time, the organic matter in the soil increases, and over time then, uh, this small increase in the amount of soil organic carbon might be less than, uh, you know, a fraction of a ton per acre, but that's something that the market would be willing to pay for in the sense that we have emitters who are emitting carbon dioxide, and at least in the early years of meeting some sort of reduction, they can in effect sell or excuse me, buy carbon offsets where someone else is storing carbon on their farm. So that was the gist of the Chicago Climate Exchange early work. Uh, they started in 2003. We didn't get involved until 2006. And then North Dakota Farmers Union decided to become, quote, an aggregator with the Chicago Climate Exchange. An aggregator means that we put together enough acres or tons of stored carbon so that we can sell large blocks on the Chicago Climate Exchange and uh, return a little bit of money back to the farmers. So since 2006, uh, I guess we are now enrolled with all of the states besides North Dakota and the other states that we have managing, managing now for North Dakota Farmers Union. We're in the neighborhood of about 5.5 million acres of either no-till crops, uh, cropland converted to grasses, or our fastest growing uh, offset is the uh, uh, native rangeland, where instead of doing conventional season-long grazing, we are uh, helping farmers sell credits for higher levels of management, uh, typically called prescribed rotational grazing, and uh, that has enabled them to earn credits on the Chicago Climate Exchange from rangeland. So when you put all of those kinds of practices together, then we are selling credits for some over 5 million acres of land, uh, representing about 3,800 farmers in uh, in the various states. 
Okay, now can you get a little bit more into the details of how this uh, how this trading mechanism works? Um, sure. M- maybe talk us through uh, a yep. common type of transaction. One of the keys of any successful market, whether it's uh, you know the Chicago Board of Trade or the Minneapolis Grain Exchange or any of those that are trading traditional commodities, is we have to first define precisely what it is that we are trading. So in the case of uh, the Chicago Board of Trade, for instance, trading corn futures, everybody knows that it is a bushel of uh, number two U.S. corn. Well, uh, or in the case of the Minneapolis Grain Exchange, it's a bushel of hard red spring wheat with such and such protein and all of that kind of stuff. Well, when we start trading what some people would call emission reductions or trading carbon dioxide futures or trading carbon dioxide stored tons, uh, it becomes a little bit more difficult to define that. But basically, what is traded on the Chicago Climate Exchange and what we as an aggregator of farmer and rancher credits bring to the market is is tons of stored carbon, carbon dioxide, I guess, specifically. And in fact, the market recognizes a metric ton of stored carbon dioxide is the trading unit. So based on soil science, the Chicago Climate Exchange then in the early uh, 2002-2003 period uh, put together a, a what's called an offsets committee, and they looked at uh, some of the most uh, recent peer-reviewed soil data, and a lot of this was done by university or uh, USDA uh, folks, and basically said in regions of the country, based on soil types, based on rain, rainfall patterns, cropping history, and so forth, each of these areas of the country, depending on the practice, whether it's no-till, conversion to grass, or managing rangeland, or even in some cases uh, planting trees for afforestation. But each of these regions of the country, we can scientifically say that we are storing six-tenths of a ton per acre uh, for each year we do a carbon credit practice, or uh, uh, an eighth of a ton per acre in some of our range, depending on where it's at and so forth. So the the whole point of the market then was to, first of all, establish the trading rules or the, the specify what we're, what we're trading, and then how the yield of carbon credits is established, and that's, of course, based on this soil offsets committee. So, for instance, if you are doing no-till cropping in, uh, oh, let's just pick Nebraska as an example, uh, and if you do this, you promise to do it for five continuous years, and, of course, that's important here, is that this is just not, not a one-time thing, but each year you do continuous no-till cropping and meet the the definition, uh, you can sell four-tenths of a ton per acre per year of carbon carbon credits from your no-till. If you convert cropland to grass, like CRP or other kinds of uh, conversions to to permanent grass, you can sell up to a metric ton per acre per year and uh, on those kind of programs. And if you sustainably manage rangeland, uh, you might be earning up to uh, a quarter to a third of a ton per acre on some of those kinds of things. So specifically, I guess, when you ask the question, how did this get started, it, it took someone who started the market and developed some some rules or some trading protocols based on science. And at that point, then you can go out to a farmer and rancher and say, look, if you promise to do this practice for five years, the soil science will say that the organic matter and the soil carbon in your land will increase, and we can sell this into the market. Now, just briefly, for people who are maybe new to this or haven't given this much thought, what is the motivation for people to buy this? I mean, who's buying it and why? Right. 
on the other side of the market, uh, just like on the other side of a commodity market, uh, you know, farmers uh, sell corn and somebody buys corn, on the Chicago Climate Exchange or an emissions uh, trading market, the buyers are in most cases uh, companies like Fortune 500 companies or any other entity that has made a commitment that they're going to reduce their greenhouse gas or their carbon footprint. Now, what this means then is that at least if, the, if uh, let's say a company joins the Chicago Climate Exchange on the other side of the market from us, in other words, we're a seller into the market, but they're going to join the market and they're going to be joining as an emitting member. What they have to do then is an energy audit, and this is all done by third-party verification, but they have to audit what their emissions have been and establish a baseline year. Typically, it's been the year 2000, and this company then makes a promise that by the year 2008 or 9, they were going to make at least a 6% reduction in their output of greenhouse gases. Now, they have to actually reduce and meet half of their target by true emission reductions, and if they meet at least half of it, then at least in the early years, they can go into the market and say, look, uh, you are a farmer in, uh, in North Dakota, and uh, we can pay you to store, based on science, a certain number of tons on your farm, and we will use half of that uh, to meet our emission reduction goal. So in effect, it's a market-based system so that the emitters of carbon dioxide, whether it's uh, utility companies, whether it's manufacturers, whether it's other public institutions, if they make the promise to reduce their carbon emissions, folks on the other side of the market like ourselves that are bringing offsets in, uh, offsetting carbon dioxide emissions, that for at least half of their goal, or yeah, at least half their goal, they can use these carbon offsets to meet a portion of the goal. And the market-based approach would say that if they could pay a farmer uh, so many dollars a ton to store carbon, and that would be cheaper than immediately bringing in technology or getting the permits to reduce their emissions with some new technology, that it would be a good thing in the early years and to help them absorb the changing of practices to reduce carbon emissions. What is the motivation for them doing so? Are they mandated to do so under legislation? In the United States, uh, we do not have mandated legislation. There's a lot of buzz going on in Congress right now and different proposals. Uh, since 2003, there have been uh, some over 300 companies that have joined the Chicago Climate Exchange as voluntary reduction goals. In other words, it's voluntary whether they join the Chicago Climate Exchange as an emitting member, but once they join, it's a legally binding agreement that says they're going to reduce their emissions. Now, why would they do that? Well, for a number of reasons. First of all, they might think that, you know, they're going to get ahead of the curve. They're going to experiment with a uh, carbon emission reduction market. In some cases, the shareholders of a company would say, look, we want you to reduce your carbon dioxide footprint. Here's a method for you to get started. And in some cases, companies are doing this strictly as an investment for the future. They think that if they buy carbon offsets today at relatively low prices, and if the United States uh, Congress uh, or the administration pass a carbon uh, reduction, greenhouse gas reduction system, that these tons of stored carbon may actually improve in value. So there's certainly uh, lots of different motivations why a company would uh, agree to a voluntary carbon or greenhouse gas reduction system. You had talked about the different practices that enable people to, farmers uh, specifically, to get involved with this. Now, you had also said that 
the farmers implement a certain practice and based on the soil conditions and the climate conditions and all of the thi all of the things that you mentioned uh, it's pretty well established that the soil will store X amount of carbon. Why was it done this way? And is there any initiative to actually measure the amount of carbon that's being stored on any of these projects? Well, the reason that the system developed, I guess, first of all, was that for a lot of cases, for the amount of dollars that are available from the carbon offset market at this point, it's probably not going to be practical for every farmer to go out and sample soil on uh, his various acreages and prove uh, with soil science that on this tract of land there's more carbon at the end of the year than at the beginning of the year. So from a practical standpoint, for a large market to work, you're essentially going to have to do this based on modeling, based on good soil science, and based on saying if you take soils in this particular region of the United States based on what's called land resource regions, uh, and based on rainfall, based on the kinds of growing practices, uh, crop rotations and so forth, it's reasonable to expect that we could conservatively store at least this amount of carbon for doing a practice on this acre of land. That is the way the market has developed, and I guess even worldwide, uh, if there develops a, uh, you know, a Copenhagen agreement or a, a Son of Kyoto agreement, the expectation is that if agriculture and forestry offsets are going to be brought into this, is that there will actually be sales based on, you know, large-scale modeling based on good science rather than individually uh, trying to do soil science. As an example, uh, with the current prices today, uh, carbon offsets for farmers and ranchers uh, might only be a dollar to two dollars to three dollars an acre. Uh, yet, if you were going to bring out a soil scientist and actually uh, uh, sample, uh, you know, a quarter section of land, it probably would cost, uh, you know, several dollars an acre to do the soil sampling. So, in effect, the sampling to prove the increase in carbon would cost or would essentially cost more than what the offset is worth. So that wouldn't be practical. So I think in terms of making a market work that's going to be realistic and say, look, we're going to use good science, but we're going to model this and say that if we can prove this on a small tract of land, then we can expand this by the use of saying if we use these good management practices and we lock the farmer into a five-year contract, so it's not that he's doing this in and out. He's got to do it for five continuous years. We're reasonably sure that he has stored it least this much of the, the carbon that's there. The further safeguard on this whole thing is under current trading protocols, whatever the team of scientists uh, of the Soil Offsets Committee of the Chicago Climate Exchange, in, in this example, uh, whatever they came up with is with, with a suggested rate of sequestration, whether it's six-tenths of a ton or four-tenths of a ton, whatever, that rate is about 20% less than what the actual soil science would say. In other words, there's kind of a uh, a reserve built into this that we're only going to give farmers, uh, you know, 80% of the rate that they're that that we think the soil is going to uh, actually sequester, just in case that our our measurement isn't quite accurate. And then on top of that, once the farmer agrees to that, and his rate is, uh, let's say, four-tenths of a ton in, uh, in a particular region of the country uh, for doing no-till, then during the five-year contract, 
the the farmer only gets paid 80% of that amount. So in other words, there's a second 20% reserve. And at the end of the five-year contract, if he successfully completes all of those uh, practices and the conditions are, you know, that he's done all of this, then he gets the remaining 20%. So you might think of that as a carrot on a stick, but actually it is a 20% escrow reserve during the life of the contract to make sure that he actually follows that. And then another key component to this, Frank, is the fact is that these contracts, and even though we sell them into the Chicago Climate Exchange, National Farmers Union is an aggregator. Uh, we bring these contracts here, but we actually have to hire third-party verification. In other words, someone independent of us, the aggregator, someone who goes out and samples at least 10 to 15% of our contracts every year, in some cases more with some of our beginning range line contracts and so forth. But there's third-party verification that's actually going out there and saying, yes, the practice is being done on the land that's been contracted. Yes, the, ranging, the range management uh, grazing plan is being followed on the range acres and enrolled. So, you know, there's a lot of safeguards here. Agricultural offsets uh, sometimes get a bad uh, reputation that these are not uh, real tons being stored and the science is fuzzy. But uh, I guess as a farmer and as an aggregator of credits for farmers and ranchers going into the market, I would say that the, uh, the system has a lot of safeguards built into it. But doesn't it also seem like it's, it seems a little bit geared to keep the price of carbon low? Well, I don't, I don't know if uh, if that would be the case. I, I guess from a seller's perspective, uh, you know, just like when you sell a bushel of corn, you think it should be worth more than that. Uh, we would say today that uh, because of the uncertainty, I think, of federal legislation, uh, because of the financial crisis, and a lot of companies, uh, you know, maybe at this point, if it's a voluntary program, they haven't uh, really aggressively bought carbon offsets. And I think the other part of it is is that. Uh, Actually, with the economic downturn that we've had in the last year or so, there are a lot of companies due to reducing output, uh, becoming more efficient with their transportation, all of those kinds of things. Actually, a lot of companies have achieved a lessening of their greenhouse gas output anyway, so the need for them to go into the, into the market today is probably less. All of that has contributed to the carbon offsets being fairly cheap. Uh, just to give you an example, uh, a year ago, in May of 2008, uh, the price of carbon on the Chicago Climate Exchange was over $7 a ton. Today, it's under $2 a ton. Well, there's been plenty of credits on the market. Companies have not necessarily had to buy credits because of their reduced emissions that they've had for a lot of other reasons. And I think the third part of it is uh, simply that Congress is uh, you know, really having a good debate now as to the value of agriculture and forestry offsets. And there are a lot of folks who are on the sideline and saying, you know, I'm not sure I want to buy offsets because, first of all, I don't know if I'm going to need them. And secondly, depending on the legislation, we're not sure how these credits will necessarily fit into a federally mandated cap-and-trade system. So there's a certain amount of uncertainty, and I think that's probably part of the reason that the price of carbon is as low as it is. If we can contrast that to the rest of the world, the European trading system uh, has actually a lot lesser role for offsets uh, for a number of different reasons, but interestingly, the price of carbon offsets or emission reductions in Europe has been anywhere from uh, 15 to 30, 35 dollars a ton for the last several years. And just because 
the U.S. system has not necessarily been approved or uh, the standards don't align with some of the other markets, we literally cannot sell U.S.-generated carbon offsets into the world market, at least with the standards that we're using for the Chicago Climate Exchange. Yeah, and it's important, I think, just to maybe reiterate a little bit, but the difference between offsets and emissions reductions. Yep, offsets are essentially someone who is doing a practice that we would say, science would say, that they are storing carbon, storing tons of carbon, and when you bring that into the market, you're essentially offsetting a ton of carbon that somebody else is is emitting. So if we look at that, uh, you know, uh, if I store a ton of carbon on my farm because I'm a no-till farmer and on this particular acreage I store a ton of carbon, we've, we've essentially pulled out one ton of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, if the science is right, I think it is, and then that offsets someone else putting a ton of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So the net result is is that the additional ton that this emitter has put out is offset by the ton that's being stored on my farm. In contrast, an emission reduction is actually if this company was putting out 100 tons of greenhouse gases and now this next year due to some technological change due to something or other, they're only putting out 99 tons, that would be a ton of carbon reduction and that's an emission reduction and that would be in contrast to an offset which is a ton of carbon stored, pulled out of the atmosphere and stored into the ground. The atmosphere doesn't really care if we put up one ton less as an emission reduction or if we pull out one ton and store it into our soil or store it into trees in the case of forestry, the atmosphere doesn't really care. It's the net change that makes the difference. Well, and also there's a lot of talk of people using soils and trees and the biosphere generally to extract a lot of the the legacy load of carbon out of the atmosphere and into our terrestrial and uh, aquatic ecosystems. Right. If, if we look at the soil science of uh, the Midwest and the Western states in the United States, you know, if we look at uh, when Mother Nature was, uh, I guess, in charge, and a lot of these lands were, uh, you know, brushland, uh, trees, uh, and huge million acre, multi-million acres of prairie. If we were to go out there and measure the soil organic matter, and then specifically within that, the carbon that's included in the organic matter, it would have been very high. And 100 years, 150, 200 years of agriculture in a lot of cases, we could now go out and say, well, we haven't necessarily ruined our soils, but our level of organic matter through conventionally tilled agriculture has decreased a lot. And over time, that organic matter is essentially oxidized or mixed with oxygen. And we have, I mean, agriculture has contributed a lot to the carbon dioxide legacy load that's in the atmosphere, as you mentioned. As we change our management practices and we start building organic matter in our soil and the carbon is included in that organic matter, and we do that by lessening the amount of tillage, or we do that by converting marginal cropland into grassland, or we do that by excuse me, sustainably managing rangeland that we allow you know, grasses to follow a more natural process and have a higher vegetative growth. All of those things then technically are capturing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. 
obviously the oxygen gets released, but the carbon ends up as a part of the organic matter of the soil. And of course, initially, the, the plant material, the plant residue is on the surface of the soil. Over time, as we continue to do no-till cropping, as we continue to have grasses, perennial grasses, instead of conventionally tilled cropland and other conservation kinds of practices, then that carbon is slowly added back in as a part of the organic matter. And uh, that's where we see the additional tons of carbon being stored in the soil profile. So based on just what, what you just said, it would seem that these carbon offset programs have the potential to promote sustainable agriculture and sustainable agricultural practices. And I think that's something that uh, the, the people that listen to this podcast and a lot of other people out there that are advocating for this can support. On the other hand, it's the, I, I think that the jury's still out if this can really help to combat global warming. Can you address that? Well, uh, that's that's a part of the big discussion that's going on right now. Uh, I guess it's estimated that uh, in the United States today, you now different countries of the world would certainly be different than we are, but in the United States it's estimated that agriculture probably accounts for about 7% of all of the greenhouse gases that are being emitted uh, in, in, any one, uh, in any one year. If we took a substantial amount of our cropland and converted it to less tillage, and if we took a bunch of our marginal cropland and seeded it to grass, and if we more did a more sustainable job of managing our rangeland, it's estimated that agriculture could absorb each year about 25% of the total emissions that the United States is putting up. So while the United States, you know, in general is uh, ex experimenting with climate change legislation and so forth, I think the potential is there for agriculture and forestry to be a big part of the early part of this. Now, granted, down the road, there may be expensive high-tech solutions. Uh, you know, maybe we can capture carbon as we burn coal for electricity. That's a goal of the coal industry. Uh, there's, there's hope that we can switch from a lot of other fossil fuels and reduce our carbon footprint long-term. But I think in the immediate future, we could store billions of tons of carbon dioxide with agriculture, and we can do it relatively easily and relatively quickly just by adopting a lot of conservation practices and doing things that are going to increase the amount of carbon in the organic matter of our soil profile. So I, I guess to, to answer your question there, I think there's a lot of potential, at least in the early years. Uh, sometimes in our organization, I think specifically our policy language uh, says something about agriculture can be a bridge to climate stabilization. And we all worry about the level of carbon dioxide going up and causing lots of uh, you know, unknown consequences. But at least in the early years, we think we could be, at least be the bridge to some sort of stabilization of the increasing amount of carbon dioxide. And then maybe over time, as we develop some high-tech solutions, then that probably will take the place of some of the early action that would be done with agriculture and forestry. Well, Dell, that's a positive note, and I always try to end on a positive note. So <laughs> I think that we'll wrap it up there. And I'd like to thank you for joining us, and this was an interesting conversation. Well, I appreciate the chance to visit, and I guess I would encourage any farmers or ranchers who, uh, you know, are wondering uh, how they can take part in uh, some sort of a uh, uh, discussion of greenhouse gases. Uh, there's a lot of uh, educational material uh, out in there. I'd specifically like to uh, at least uh, talk to people about uh, visiting our website, uh, www.carboncredit.ndfu.org. 
And uh, you don't have to necessarily enroll in our program, but we've got a lot of educational materials there, how this whole system would work, uh, how the contracts are actually uh, drawn up, and there are sample contracts there to show the farmer what he's involved with. There's also a bit of a uh, worksheet there that he can calculate, at least on a rough basis, if he enrolled so many acres of the various offset practices, what it w might mean to him at today's carbon market prices. So I'd encourage people to look at that uh, website and uh, educate themselves because it's certainly going to be a topic as we move forward. Well, we will link to that web to your website on the show notes for this episode, which can be found at agroinnovations.com slash podcast. And thank you so much for joining us, Dale Anderson. Very good. Thanks, Frank. That is the end of my interview with Dale Anderson of the North Dakota Farmers Union. And I'd like to just once again thank Dale for his participation and for the great work that he's doing and for the great work that his organization is doing. Soil carbon is a theme that we will probably be talking about more frequently on the Agro-Innovations podcast. So if this is a theme that you are involved in or interested in, you can send me your suggestions via podcast at agroinnovations.com. And I'd like you all to know that I do receive your show suggestions, and I do oftentimes try to get in touch with some of the people that you refer me to. And sometimes they respond and sometimes they do not. So if you recommended someone for me to interview, I have a list of folks based on those recommendations. And I do frequently get in touch with those people on my list. And like I said, sometimes they get back to me and sometimes they don't. It's kind of hit and miss with this. So don't feel uh, like I ignored what you, what you sent me along. It was probably just that they did not respond to my request or that I have not yet gotten around to asking them for an interview. This and all episodes of the Agro-Innovations podcast are released under an attribution share-alike Creative Commons license. You can find out more about that at creativecommons.org. And this is part of a group called the Grasslands Carbon Working Group, that is a group of researchers and soil scientists dedicating to further the promotion of sustainable soil carbon management for the mitigation and adaptation to global climate change. So if you are someone who is involved in that deeply, then please get in touch with me because you may be interested in becoming a member of the Grasslands Carbon Working Group, and you may just have the expertise and the experience to be a productive contributing member to that group. So you can contact me via our website, agroinnovations.com, and you can click on the link that says content, contact up there at the top of the page. If you want to learn more about who we are and what we do, you can also visit our website. That's, once again, agroinnovations.com, and you can click on the link that says services and learn about the services that we provide to our clients. That's about all that I have for you today. I will be going on vacation next week, so I will not be publishing an episode of the podcast, but I should have something ready for you Monday, May 11th. So sit tight for that, and I, need, uh, I will be taking much-needed vacation and some downtime uh, going to Florida to spend some time on the beach, of all places. I'm Frank Aragona. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Saludos.